welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. This week starts the final season of this podcast series, in which I read a selection of Ella Manuel's stories about childhood in Newfoundland, entitled Ghosts and Dirty Tricks. In this first episode, she recalls a memorable Guy Fawkes night when she was a young girl in Lewisport in the 1920s. It was Bonfire Night in Burnt Bay. This particular time I'm telling you about 60 years or more ago, and that would make me around 12 years old, a boy called Leo came home from Boston and stayed with us till his parents could shift back home. That was some nice, as I never had brothers, and he liked girls, though I was almost two years younger than he was. So first going off, we got along fine. Now this was in October when we started thinking and talking about bonfire night, November the 5th. Leo had never heard of that poor fellow being brought up in Boston. So one night at supper table, mother told him about it, beginning to sing, Oh, don't you remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plots? She told Leo about how Guy Fawkes and his crowd planned to blow up the Houses of Parliament in England when the king came to open it, because the king was Protestant and Guy Fawkes and his crowd were Catholics. Leastwise, that's what we were taught then, but I dare say these days they got another story. Back in those days, we youngsters would put our minds to collecting stuff, weeks before bonfire night came. Now we had two gangs in our village, crowds we called them. One gang lived up to the bottom, and the other down to the point. Of course, we all went to the same school, which was two rooms, and everybody from primer to intermediate all together. During recess or at dinner time, everyone would try to find out the secrets of everyone else. And when we played games of scout out or jackstones in the yard, we always had to be careful what we said. Now, when Leo caught on, he organized a spy ring from the point crowd, and we had to report to him everything we heard. Pat Leo. He had more ideas in one day than we could think up in a month. Comes from living in the city, I suppose, or reading lots of books. Soon he got to be the leader of our crowd, which was me and Mab, Millicent and Stella and Arch, Harvey and Herb, and more I can't remember now. One day Mab overheard Bill from up in the bottom tell his crowd that Uncle Mose Williams had hove out a damn great pile of longers that he'd stacked in his yard and got tired looking at, so he drugged him down to the land wash by his house. Mab said that the bottom crowd were making to take up the longers to their fire just before the night, and they were acting some proud about it. Leo told Mab she was right smart, but he didn't say anything else. Next evening being Friday and calm on the water as glass, he asked Father if we could have the punt to go jigging after supper if we promised to be home by dark and father said yes. So off we went, and we jigged a bit, and then just getting duckish, we rode like grease lightning up to the bottom. 
and there we saw Harvey and Mab and Herb and a couple more squat down behind a big rock waiting for us. I, I was surprised then, and I said, I didn't know they were coming, and Leo said, Aha, that's the way you arrange stuff like this, all secret, so's your right hand don't know what your left's up to. Well, it didn't take us long to get the longers stowed in the boat, and we were pretty nearly overloaded, dangerous if it hadn't been so calm, and all the time rowing home I was trying to think how to get the longers stowed away, and it was near dark by now. If we didn't get inside the kitchen door in the next five minutes, that would be the end of going out after supper. Leo said we'd go in quiet-like and not say anything, and then when everyone was in bed he'd creep out and put the longers under the stage for now, till we could think of somewhere else safer. Of course, you know why I wanted to go with him, but Leo said as my room was right next to Mother's and his was way down the hall, he could get out best. And he said that if anyone caught him, he'd always say he was walking in his sleep. Have <laughs> that, Leo. Well, it was several days before the crowd up to the bottom found out that the longers were gone, and we could see that they were puzzled. They couldn't ask where they went because they weren't supposed to know anything about them. So finally, according to our spies, they decided that Uncle Mose must have changed his mind and lugged them home again. Leo did hear one of them saying, You don't suppose that crowd of Slevines down to the point took them? And the other said, Ah, don't be so foolish. How would they know? Well, it was now five days to bonfire night, and we started to get worried about the small amount of stuff we'd put together for the fire, though we'd worked like slaves. One day, Stell said, Couldn't we swipe a oil barrel? And Harvey told him that there wasn't a smell of an oil barrel anywhere, because he'd looked already. Leo asked about the old cod oil punching down on Snow's stagehead that was nice and greasy and smelled something awful. Well, we, we couldn't take that, Harvey said, shocked. Harv had the biggest conscience of the lot of us, which might be because his grandfather was lay preacher, but Stell persisted. Why can't we? They've gone away, and I don't suppose they'll be back for years, and old Mr. Snow is getting too old to fish anyway. He won't need it, and we sure do. So Leo said, we'd leave it until the night, and then see how we got on, provided the bottom crowd didn't take it first. I wondered how we were going to get the great punchin' up to the fire when we wanted it, if we didn't do so beforehand. Well, same way we got the longers, foolish, Leo said, and we had to be satisfied with that. It was a calm night with a new moon shining on the water like little snakes, and it was so quiet you could hear yourself breathe. Leo and I went out for a little walk before bed. We went down to Snow's Wharf to have a look at the punchin', and when we saw the shadow of a punt making for the wharf, Leo put one hand on my shoulder, the other over my mouth. We heard a noise like oars being shipped, and then I whispered, Tie her on here, boys, and steps coming up the stage head ladder. And just then Leo let out the most awful blare you ever heard, a cross between a shriek and a howl. Well, you talk about greased lightning. I never before nor since witnessed a punt leave his stagehead with the speed that one put on. We never heard, not even from one of our spies, anyone up in the bottom mention what had happened, not even to each other. But it was them all right. Next day was warm, the air smelling like rotten fruit and leaves, and Leo disappeared. He wasn't in school that afternoon, and he didn't come home for supper. 
course, I wasn't going to tell him Mooch, but I was worried when Dark came and he wasn't home. I told Father that he'd probably gone to Archer's and stayed for supper. Mother grumbled that he should have let us know, but of course there were no things as telephones then. When nine o'clock came and no Leo, Father decided to go looking for him, and as he was getting on his boots, in comes Leo. He looked tired and sheepish and just a little bit scared, but he managed to wink at me so nobody else saw. Now, me son, Father said right stern, what's the meaning of all this? I was getting ready to look for you. I was that worried. Leo said he was sorry, but he'd gone into the woods with Arch and his father to help bring out some firewood, and it had taken longer than he realized to get home. First thing came to my mind was if Leo just told a lie, I hoped he'd had enough sense to get Arch to vouch for him. Father accepted his apology. Leo had some bread and molasses, and we all went to bed, me still wondering what the wink was about. Probably something to do with the bonfire, I decided. And I was right. Next day, Leo told us he had a big surprise, something he had found, and we would be some proud when we saw it, but we had to wait till the bonfire was burning bright. Tease and torment as we would, Leo wouldn't say another word. By the time it was bonfire night, we were sick with excitement. And although Mother gave us a special nice supper with fried cod tongues and partridge berry pie, we could hardly eat a bite. Around six o'clock, we met at the place we picked out for the fire, which was on top of a low cliff by the beach that you could see from everywhere in the bay. We had armloads of stuff that we piled up, and then we went back for more. We poured a little drop of kerosene over the heap, and up it went. Whoosh! Whoosh! right up to the dark and cloudy sky. The fire burned and burned, and then we hove on the cod oil punching. That was almost too good, and for an awful minute we thought we would be caught fire, too. We danced and yelled and threw our arms around, and Mother said we looked like a bunch of demons, only she didn't know what demons we were going to turn out to be that night. Finally we stopped for breath, and by now our fire was low. Someone looked up to the bottom and yelled that there was a tremendous blaze going straight up the sky with hardly any smoke, and here was our fire almost dead by now. Leo shouted, Ha! I forgot me surprise, and disappeared into the dark. And when he hove into sight again, a few minutes later, he was dragging the tallest, biggest, blasty tree I ever did see, and giving a yell, Here's me surprise! and he threw it smack into the middle of the embers. Oh, what burning, what crackling, what a whirl of flame, but not for long because blasty boughs make a wonderful show but don't last long. Soon the fire was deep red and tiny again. Look, Leo shouted, down to the bottom, still raging their fire. We got to do something, but what? He kept searching around the cliff. Then he saw below us on the beach between two boulders Two punts bottom up, one near the other. Come on, he screeched, waving us toward the beach. We grabbed the gunwale of the first boat we reached, but we couldn't move it a foot. Never do it, never in the world, said Harvey, and perhaps we shouldn't anyway. It must belong to the walls. All the better, Mab said. Pay them for all the yelling and screeching they do to us when we come near. You'd think we were going to haul their house down or something. The rest of us agreed. Leo wiped the sweat off his face and told us we had to break up the old craft and lug it up, bit by bit, up the hill. He told someone to get an axe, 
and in a split second, Arch was off and back with a double-bladed axe his father used in the lumber woods. Leo grabbed it, and telling us all to keep back, he chopped and hacked and smashed until the punt was in pieces small enough to carry up to the fire. Two of us it took to lug the keel, and then we fed it bit by bit into the fire, which blazed up high again with the old wood and all the paint on it, and by now the fire down to the bottom had died out, but ours continued to burn bright for hours. Suddenly Mab whispered, Look what we've done! Young Stell wailed, We'll be skinned! Though I dare say she never got a lickin' in her life, and Leo said twas done now, and he'd like to know who's going to find out who did it unless we told. We said we wouldn't be that foolish. We didn't want to be skinned. But the next morning Leo and I felt a bit queasy, and we dawdled over breakfast. Father came in from having a look to see if anyone had damaged our fences in the night. He sat down and looked at us, and I thought, uh-oh, now it's coming. But no, all of a sudden he began to laugh, and he laughed till the tears came, and every time he commenced to tell us the joke he would choke with laughter again. And finally he said, I never heard the like in my old life. Old Bill Wall went down last night and crawled under his punt in case some youngsters came round his beach. I allows he had a drink or two because while he was there, a crowd came down and smashed up his brother Elias's boat. And father went off again in a hoot of laughter. <laughs> I dare say Bill was crowing about that because you knows he and his brother don't get along. So he was too miserable to stop them. Anyhow, the way I heard it, Bill got up early this morning and was lighting the stove when Elias came in and said with a laugh, Looks like you lost your punt last night. Not me, said Bill. I was right under her all night, looking out to her. Well, you'd better have another look out, said Elias, because your punt is most surely gone without a splinter left, and mine is right where I left her. Then I guess the light dawned on Elias, and he told Bill, you know what you've done. You got under my boat. I came in late yesterday evening and put my boat below yours so I could get to her easy in the cocker in the morning, and you thought was yours. Serves the old Langashore right, said Mother, with gales of laughter. And do you know, nobody thought to ask where Bill's punt did go. And I don't suppose anyone in our crowd down to the point ever did tell about it until now. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in next week to The Ghost of Dorman's Cove. Mm-hmm.